Let's open our Bibles this morning to Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations is at the end of Jeremiah. In fact, it's almost a continuation of the book of Jeremiah. And as we look at God's abundance, we we looked at uh, last week who it was for. It's for those who belong to him. And now we begin to look at some of the particulars of when we find God's abundance in our life. This one comes uh, at the time of grief in particular. Grief, trial, suffering. Uh, This is when we find a a particular type of God's abundance in our lives. And and it can often be very difficult (laughs) to find because we want it now and we want this relieved, but yet it comes in God's time. It comes in the morning when he provides it. So if you're able, will you stand with me as I read from Lamentations chapter 3? It'll be verses 31, 32, and 33. Our Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit, we ask, that our eyes might be open to your word that our hearts might be enlivened by your word, that we might find all that you have for us, even in the darkest times of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly, or grieve the sons of men. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And you want to keep your Bible open because we're going we're gonna to put you to work today. We've got a lot of passages to go through and a lot of things to see, both in Lamentations and in other parts of God's word, that help us understand what this means. Now in his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And and I accept that, he says. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself and not to others, when it is a reality, not an imagination. It's always harder when it's our own. I can sympathize with you, but I really don't understand it. But when it happens to me, then we think, Lord, why is this happening to me? Where's my relief? Where are you in the midst of this? He went on to say, in the midst of my suffering, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He already knew the quality of the gift he had given to me. It was I who did not know. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. See, the issue is for us to understand what we have been given. The Lord knows what he has given us. The Lord knows what he does for us. It is our job to work on that and to understand it. My guess is that if we're all honest with ourselves, the next few moments might be might be difficult, might be unpleasant for us to look at our own lives and to look at uh, perhaps trials, sufferings, or griefs that we've had or experienced and how we deal with them. In our, our Western society, 
We often take grief and we take suffering and we go back to our little own personal closet and we deal with it back there in the quiet of our own lives. And, and, and other cultures and other religions have a way of dealing with it in a, in a much more open way and, and, and of sharing the burden across the, uh, the scope of, of their relationships. And, and too often we hear well-meaning friends come to us and say, well, you've grieved long enough. Now time, just get over it, Okay. Can't you just move on from that? Then that's really helpful, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not helpful at all. Some people can. Some people can can face grief or suffering or trial and go through it, and they are done, and they put it in a different part of their lives, and it's gone. Other people have to almost rest in it for a while. They have to understand it. They have to let it work its way out of their own minds and, and deal with it and they need an extended time to to understand it or mourn or to sit on their own mourning bench and just just be but when does daylight return to our hearts when does the veil of, of grief lift in our lives and that time of grief or suffering is often unpleasant it's often painful but the end of that unpleasantness we will, if our hearts are tender to the Word of God, find comfort. We may not find a satisfactory answer that our human hearts want because we like an answer. We like it all to work out. We may not find it according to our minds and understanding, but there is great comfort available to us if we are willing to look, if we are willing to go there. Grief and suffering or trials are not something any of us ever look forward to. Yet they are promised to us, are they not? I mean, as Lewis said, it's part of the program of the Christian life. We will face these trials. We will face these things. It should not be a surprise to us. But it doesn't mean that it's not, it's not valid to ask the Lord why at this time, why now, why these things are going on. Remember last week, we looked at, at the quote from Dostoevsky, who said basically, all great and intelligent men must suffer. How about we change that and say, all men will suffer. It's just the universal truth. But it is only the believer, only the believer, the member of the body of Christ, the one who believes and accepts in the sovereignty of God and puts their trust in the only one who didn't deserve to suffer. That was Christ. Remember, he had no cause to suffer, yet he willingly did it. It is only we who put our trust in him only the believer can find the abundance of God in the midst of our grief and in our suffering. Ruth Bryan was a woman of uh, significant faith. Probably most of us have never heard of her name before. But she was born in 1805 and she passed on to the Lord in 1860. And she is remembered most for her diary and the letters that she wrote to others. Now, it, it, we just don't write letters like this anymore. Okay. If, if you remember the uh, years ago, the, the Civil War document, documentary on PBS, the letters that people wrote home in the midst of their trial and suffering, we just don't write like that anymore. And, and, and these are, are some of the words that Ruth Bryan wrote to a person called E.M. in 1857. And she talks about her own struggles and her own pain and the grace of God in the midst of that. She quotes a couple passages first. Psalm 103, He will not always accuse us or be angry. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. 
So great is his unfailing love, Lamentations. She writes, my dear friend and now companion in tribulation, my heart yearns towards you and will indulge itself a little because we are both in the same low place, feeling our vileness and mourning after our beloved. Surely there never was such a one as I, so weak and wicked, so willful, not full of his will, but of my own. How I need the emptying from vessel to vessel. I need to have my purposes and enterprises broken that I may learn that his purposes shall stand fast and that he will do all his pleasure. I've been walking after the sight of my own eyes. The legs of the lame are not equal. So when we act from sight and sense, our walk is not consistent. It is only when walking by faith that it is so. Vile, ungrateful worm that I am, what has it cost me in bitter anguish? Yet the sorrow is nothing compared to the sin. Well, I can only lie at his feet and continue confessing all. I dare not promise to do better. I am in self-despair. But to him will I look for pardon of the sin and power against it. And shall it be in vain? Is his mercy gone forever? No, dear friend. We will speak well of him. He is faithful. He does not rest in his love toward us, nor does it cool in the least in the midst of all our treacherous dealings. Once again, he will have compassion on us. His grace shall much more abound, and again we shall sing of pardoning mercy and restoring love. Words of encouragement to someone who was in the midst of grief and suffering. And counsel such as that does not come from someone who has put their grief and their time of sorrow away and hidden it in a secret place, but somebody who has laid it before the Lord and wrestled with the Lord over these questions of why and how and what does this mean in my life. So let's look to this great passage in in Lamentations and find out what this means in our life. Turn back to the beginning of chapter 3. This is about God's faithfulness. And let me give you the context of the faithfulness as it's expressed in this section of Lamentations. So I'm going to read the first few verses of of Lamentations chapter 3. And I don't think there's any greater contrast in Scripture than what we're going to find here. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 1. I'm the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has beseeched and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. What's the pronoun that's used again and again here? He, he, he. Jump down to verse 15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. And he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. And my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering. The wormwood and the bitterness. 
Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Bowed down within me. I, I doubt that there's a darker place in all of Scripture than this chapter. Maybe Job chapter 3. Maybe Jeremiah chapter 20. Maybe Psalm 88. Those are very dark places. But here in Lamentations is a, is a man who is suffering terribly. And, and, and he says, who has done this? Is the Lord who has done this? Again and again, he says, it is the Lord who has done this. Now, what is the context of this? The context is about the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And there's a 15 to 20 year period before the fall of Jerusalem where they are besieged again and again and again. There are assaults on the city and it finally collapses. And Jeremiah is probably writing maybe 10 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And the book of Lamentations is made up of five poems that talk about the suffering that he and the others he knows experiences experienced during this time. Now you can imagine all your life, all your culture, all your history, all your religion and faith are tied into this city and it is destroyed and you see the temple burn and you see your city destroyed and you cry out to the Lord and go, why are you doing this, Lord? The first question that is raised is the question of how. How in the world could this happen? And, and the book of Lamentations, that's actually the the original title is how. How could this happen? How could God allow this to take place? And Jeremiah is asking this about a city and about a country and about a people. Many of us have asked the same questions in our own lives. How could you allow this to take place in my life, Lord? How could this be? As you read through Lamentations, you hear something about the circumstances that surround the destruction of Jerusalem, the thousands of people who died, the brutality, the savagery. Things got so bad that mothers would eat their children just to survive. That's how bad it got. The cream of Judah's citizens who survived were taken away into captivity. They could no longer worship. They could no longer experience their culture. Everything that they had was gone everything. And it's not just the Babylonians that did this. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar who did this. Turn to chapter 1, verse 12. You already know this because we've looked at the pronoun that was used so often. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain in my pain which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. The Lord has inflicted on his own people these things because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness. If you, We're not going to go there today, but Amos chapter 5 is the prophecy concerning the fall of Jerusalem. And this is when the Lord pours out his anger upon his people who have deserted him and been unfaithful. And then they cry out and say, Lord, why have you done this? Why? How could this possibly happen? But God has done this. And that's the problem in our lives, isn't it? We look at a sovereign God and we say, Lord, you're in control of everything, aren't you? Then why is this happening? Why is this going on? It's easier if we, you know, can blame it on Satan Blame it on, well, it's just the world, right? But for we who believe in the sovereignty of God, 
We who believe in the decree of God, we believe in the will of God, the primacy of God's involvement in all things. And to look at, as example, this and say, yes, God has done this. God is right there in the very midst of the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what Lamentations is saying. And that's the real problem, isn't it? We say, well, where's, where's God's abundance in this, okay? Where's the happy message in this? Where is all of his love and his care when Jerusalem is being destroyed? How about our lives? Lord, where is your love and your care? Here I am suffering. I'm in my dark pit. This is the darkest I've ever been in my life. And Lord, where are you in the midst of this? Where's God's mercy? Where's God's care? So often I seem to be alone in my darkest times. But listen to the words of Jeremiah in the midst of all that is going on. Chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. This suffering, Jeremiah uses this term, brings me to the dust. Okay, it crushes him. It, it bears upon him so much that he thinks he is almost ready to return to the dust. But yet he asserts the steadfastness, the immovability, and the trustworthiness of God. Chapter 3, 21. He says, this I call to mind. This I call to mind. He deliberately remembers this. If we were, this, the New Testament equivalent is truly, truly I say unto you. Or if you have your King James, it's verily, verily. Okay, But I purposely remember what the Lord is, what the Lord has done. I purposely remember what? Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. Lord, you're doing all this. You're crushing us. You're destroying Jerusalem. Yes, we've been unfaithful, but what do we remember? Your loving kindnesses never cease. They never cease. The death, the brutality, the destruction of Jerusalem, the savagery, the trials, the difficulty. Jeremiah says, they bring me to the dust, the dust itself. But I remember one thing that is true. This is who you are, Lord. You are faithful. We see this throughout Scripture. Exodus, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. Deuteronomy, he is a faithful God. Psalm 89, you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. Your faithfulness surrounds you. Life is hard, but God is good. And that's just a little quip, but that's the truth. That is the truth. The prophets, the writers of the Psalms, the apostles, all of God's word states these things. You will have trial. You will have grief. You will have suffering. They don't sugarcoat anything. They don't say, you know what? Life is going to be good. Once you become a Christian, man, you are just going to do fantastic things. And life will be good. Nothing but blessing will come into your life. Scripture doesn't say that. Blessing will come to your life. But you are promised what? You are promised difficulty. You are promised suffering. The world is sinful. It is a simply an outgrowth of the sinful world in which we live. God is sovereign over all things. We'll suffer. We'll grieve. We'll have pain. He will be steadfast in his love towards us in the midst of that. But we ask the question, why does God seem so distant when we find the midst, ourselves in the midst of grief? Why is it so often that we sit there and we cry out to him and say, Lord, are you not paying attention to me? Are you not even listening to me? And the silence can be deafening, as they say. We think God's abandoned me. 
It's a common thought. If you've ever thought that in your life, it is a common thought. Let's go to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. And if you read the writings of people like Oswald Chambers and his devotional in particular, if you read Charles Spurgeon, if you read the great uh, Welsh pastor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you'll discover that they all, as an example, they all knew agony. They all knew the dark night of the soul. They all knew what it meant to grieve and to suffer. But they all went to the Word and they all went to the Lord to understand what was going on. Charles Spurgeon, in, in one of his comments about part of Psalm 88, says, He who now feebly expounds these words knows within himself more than he would care or dare to tell of the abysses of inward anguish. He has sailed around the Cape of Storms and has drifted along by the dreary headlands of despair. Spurgeon says, I know what, what these words mean in my life. Been there, done that. Suffered, felt the pain, found the abundance of God in the midst of it. Let me read from Psalm 88 here for a few verses. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit, for I become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom thou dost remember no more. They are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast put me in the lowest pit, in, in dark places, in the depths. Thy wrath has rested upon me. Thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Thou hast removed my acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon thee every day, O Lord. I've spread out my hands to thee. Will thou perform wonders for, for, for the deed, for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise thee? It goes on and on. Most psalms go and they, they, they cry out to the Lord. And we see this again and again. They cry out to the Lord. They pour their hearts out. They ask all these hard questions. And at the end, there is this, in a sense, conclusion. And I will praise you. And I will understand. And I will trust in you. Psalm 88 doesn't have that. It's just a cry of desperation to the Lord. I mean, he cries out, and, and we all, uh, I mean, this is a, a person who is the choir director. A psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director according to Mahalath Leonath, a mascal of Heman, the Ezraite. This is a guy of faith. This is a guy of strong faith. This is a spiritual leader, and he says, Lord, where are you? Okay, this can't be true in my life, really. I'm in the dark places. Everybody has left. Let my prayer come before you. I cry out to you, Lord. He's pleading with God to hear his prayer. Now, is God hearing his prayer? Of course he is. But when we do that, we expect we want some action back, right? We, we say, Lord, I'm crying out. I'm praying to you. Are, are you going to respond? Are, am I going to hear something back from you? This helps us in the sense that Strong believers can have these doubts. Strong believers can have these moments. Some strong believers can go through these times of grief where, where we don't understand, where we don't know what the Lord is doing, and, and we want to know, but we think he is silent. Here is a godly, strong believer, but right now he doesn't feel like God cares about him. It doesn't seem like God cares about him. But if we can step back 
and look at, at his life or our lives, we know that we're in the midst of a battle and, and, and often there's a deep burden on our hearts. And, and when the answer is not given that our hearts long for and we're praying for deliverance in our circumstances or a word of mercy and relief from this grief, it's a difficult place to be. And, and if we're, we're honest with ourselves, we've been there. We wondered where the Lord was. Nobody wondered more than Job. But never once does Job entertain the thought that God is not in control of his life. In the whole book of Job, we don't see that. In fact, the whole wrestling of the book of Job is precisely because God, Job knows that God is in control. And he doesn't understand what he's doing. He doesn't understand what is going on. What in the world are you doing? And in Psalm 88, we see this same type of thing. Heman never tries to, you know, comfort himself by saying, well, God's doing the best he can. I know he's in control, but this must just be beyond him. We never find that. We never find. We can't punt to the fact that God is not, if God is sovereign, then he's in control. If God is not sovereign, we're in big trouble. We are in big trouble. It's the fact that God doesn't seem to be listening. That he doesn't seem to hear us in times like that. But what is the psalmist doing here? He's not talking to himself. He's still talking to God. He is still pouring out his soul to the Lord. He hasn't said, well, he just turned to self-talk and say, well, I guess I'm alone in this world and nothing else is going to happen. He is still crying out to the Lord. He is still asking questions. He is still seeking the answers from the one who has the answers. When C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer, he called out to God for comfort. And he sensed no reply. And he, he wrote, what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in our times of trouble? Well, what does Scripture say about that? Psalm 6 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, are faithful. Psalm 77, will the Lord reject forever and will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has, his, has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And perhaps the, the greatest and most painful of all the words of the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, that's the Psalm Christ quotes on the cross. Turn the New Testament with me to 1 Peter. Here we're going to find some concrete answers to what our hearts are seeking for. It's going to help us appreciate the times of grief and distress and trial and suffering for those who belong to the Lord. First Peter chapter one. Part of experiencing grief and part of experiencing the abundance that the Lord has for us in the midst of that is, is very important to our spiritual lives. 
If we only take what we think the good the Lord has to offer for us, we don't understand who he is. If we only think that God is the great enforcer in the sky waiting to kill our joy and, and, and anything that when we get out of line, we do not understand who God is. God is sovereign over all things, whether they be joys or sufferings. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith in salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. That's the salvation. That's the inheritance. That's the guarantee. You rejoice in that. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has not utterly abandoned us in the midst of our trial. Though you feel like he has. And Peter acknowledges that trial produces grief in the believer's life. It's a common experience. And he touches on two principles in particular, three principles in particular. This is a temporary experience. Grief and suffering is a temporary experience. Feeling distressed by trials, sensing an absence of God's presence, it would crush us if there were not a purpose in it. It would destroy us. So the first thing is your trial is temporary. Your trouble is temporary. God will not leave you or forsake you. He will not leave you in your distress forever. It is a temporary thing. It will cease. It won't cease as soon as you'd like it to cease. That's just the way that it works. Because we, when do we want things to cease? When do we want trials and grief to cease? Right now. God has a season for us to experience these things. To, to grow in this. But once a trial has served its purpose, once it has benefited us, its results are growth in joy in our understanding of who Christ is. So there's a purpose to our experience. Why does the believer have to experience trial? Look at verse 7. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will derive benefit from your trial, not by ignoring it, not by running away from it, not by cursing it, but by understanding its purpose. When you realize God is using the trial to make you more aware, more aware of his grace, more aware of his care for you, to fit you for eternal purposes and eternal glory, then you understand it. The third item that we learn here is that we learn that we have to respond biblically, not emotionally. Biblically, not emotionally to our trouble. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We, we lean on, we rest in, we embrace the character of God. He's allowing us to experience a temporary sorrow that provide greater benefits to us. 
a temporary sorrow that provides greater benefits to us. Romans chapter 8, we look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, in a perfect world, maybe right here in this sanctuary, we can all go, yeah, you know, the trials are, they're nothing compared to the glories that await us in heaven. But when we walk out that door and we have to live in those trials and we have to live in that grief, this must be the first thing that fits in our minds. The Lord is working within us to fit us for his glory, to fit us to better understand who he is, to prepare us for all that he has. Will that make the trial easier? You're still going to have to go through the trial. You're still going to have to feel the pain of grief. You're still going to have to suffer. But you understand why these things go on. These things are not senseless. I mean, Tim Keller writes in his book, Walking with God Through Pain, he says, in contradiction to fatalism, that suffering is overwhelming, Contradiction to Buddhism, that suffering is not real. Contradiction to karma, suffering is unfair. In contradiction to secularism, that suffering has no meaning. Christianity teaches that suffering is meaningful, that there is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a deep nail into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Only when our greatest love is God a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things in peace. He goes on to quote Jonathan Edwards. He says, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. Rejoiced in. Really? It's not enough to say, well, I guess he's God, so I have to knuckle under and just face it. That's not what we're supposed to do. You have to see his beauty. In the midst of it. Glorifying God does not mean obeying him only because you have to. It means obeying him because you want to. It means receiving what he has for you because it is what is best for you. Because we can delight in him. Thomas Chisholm was a a man who had suffered ill health in his youth. But his mind was sharp. And he, it, it was uh, at 27 he entered the ministry, and at 28 he was out of the ministry because of his ill health. But he went on, and, and he was an insurance salesman in New Jersey for many, many years. But it was his faith, and it was what the Lord had done with him and to him and through him all those years of his ill health that prepared him to begin to write about who God is and what the Lord has done in his life. He is the author of what we're going to sing. Great is thy faithfulness. And we think, Lord, I'm crying out to you, but I'm not hearing it. But yet, great is thy faithfulness. Let's stand and we'll sing it together.